0: Decision, prepare, I'll give my life and all I have, I want to know, will you be there?
1: All right, good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. My name is Samsara Taylor. I am your guest host again. I want to welcome everybody tuning in. Uh, we've got a really important uh, show for you today, I'm very excited about. Uh, I'm not excited to say that today is the one year anniversary of the illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which has quickly morphed into a proxy war between US imperialism and Russian imperialism, a war that could even include nuclear weapons. This is a very dangerous situation. So, later in the hour, I'm going to have more to share with you about that. I just wanted to put that in our minds as we begin, but that's not where we are going to spend the bulk of the show today. I'm very happy I have a guest with me to help close out Black History Month here to bring alive very important history that is far too little known and now being actively, actively suppressed. Marvin Dunn is a professor emeritus at Florida International University. He is the author of A History of Florida Through Black Eyes, which is a book that is currently banned from being taught in Florida schools. I believe you, you, it is illegal to teach it in public schools in Florida right now. Professor Dunn is somebody who has been very defiant. In addition to writing and documenting Black history in Florida and teaching this, um, he's been very defiant about the attacks on the teaching of Black history especially by Ron DeSantis. So we're going to talk more about that, but I just want to say, Professor Dunn, welcome to The Michael Slate Show, and we're so happy you're here. Uh, Welcome.
2: Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. My pleasure.
1: I mentioned uh, that you've been standing up to Ron DeSantis, and we've been covering the really fascist and white supremacist assault on public education and on the reality of the history of America and the ongoing white supremacy that is part of America today. And I want to talk about the Teach the Truth tours that you've been leading with students down there, your your defiance and standing up to Ron DeSantis. But I want to begin with the importance of the history that you have unearthed um, of Florida and of the brutality that this country has really been built on, because there is a suppression of Black history going on, but there's a lot of things that people don't know to begin with and you did a lot of work to to surface some of this. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you decided to go down that path, what provoked you, and some of what you've been unearthing in your books and on these tours with these students that you think people need to know.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation to to talk with you today and with the audience. Well, some years ago, I wrote a book on the history of Blacks in Miami. Uh, And in doing that work, I came across instances of anti-Black violence in Miami. And that sparked my interest to look deeper into anti-Black activities in Florida in general. So for um, so about uh, 10 years, I went all over Florida to places where race riots, lynchings had taken place, had taken place, um, and began to document these events. I began to talk with people who were descendants of people who were lynched and with descendants of folks who did it. Uh, and then compiled a book, This for Florida Through Black Eyes, uh, that told these stories. Uh, and then since the DeSantis uh, debacle has begun in the attack on Black history, uh, I decided to start taking high school students and their parents or grandparent to some of these places that I had visited and documented. Uh, we did one the first one in January past. Uh, these tours end up in Rosewood, where I own property. Today, I'm the only black person who owns land in Rosewood, but we go to two or three other places. Um, we visit, we pray, we commune, we reflect, we talk, and then we, we will move on to the next place. And by taking high school kids with a parent or a grandparent, which is what we require at no cost, only the adults pay for food, everything else. And these are overnight trips. Uh, uh, we take care of everything. And the idea is to have the kid, the, the student and the parent or the grandparent do this together so that the stories stay within the family. And they pass them on within the family as a way of, of, of perpetuating our history. And we have another one coming up in March where we'll take a, another group of students to other uh, places where these things happened. We Florida is in a very desperate state right now. I was teaching before Rhonda Santos was born. He was, he was born in 1978. I was born, I started teaching in the university system in 1972, I'm 82 years old. Now this man comes suddenly up to me to tell me what I can and cannot teach in my classes. Oh, no, 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 no. He's not the boss of me. So I, I joined with uh, seven other plaintiffs uh, to sue the governor, governor and to sue the state over this whole stop Book act business so that we can teach our history. And its completeness and and, and you know and, and all the brutality of it, as well as as well as, you know, and this is one of the thing things that I believe has been left out of 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 our history, particularly the history of anti-black violence. In almost every place that I visited, there were a few white people who did the right thing, hmm. one or two who protected black people, who kept the mob away, even at threat of their own lives. So and that and that and that part of the story has not been fairly told, I think. And one of the problems I have in Rosewood today when I go up to my property is that a lot of Rosewood people, saw white now, believe that their side of the story was, was not told and they're correct. So we're trying to tell the history fairly, we're trying to not avoid the difficult parts and we're trying to walk the bloody ground where these things happen.
1: Well, you know, that phrase is very evocative and also very literal, walk the bloody ground um, I want to ask you to talk further about the, the, the buried history in that bloody ground, because um, I understand that Florida is actually the state, and people may not know this, that had the highest rate of lynchings in all the southern states. And I remember years ago, um, after Trayvon Martin was murdered, I went down there with people on the Basics bus tour. We were bringing Revolution down there, and we went to Goldsboro which was the black area of that town, formerly an incorporated black town that had really been wiped out by Sanford, um, taken over. And there was a little black history museum. They took us, they brought us on a tour. But you really got the sense there and everywhere that we traveled, that there was, there was erased, hidden, buried history and brutality and white violence. And I, that's, that's the impression I have about the process of discovery that you went on in your book as well. And I, and I think it'd be important if you could share some of what you what the stories you unearthed, you talked to uh, to people about the family memories of lynchings, um, yes. both sides of this, share some of that.
2: Well, let's talk about the place that we're, that we're going to go uh, on March 4th and 5th, uh, to Live Oak, Florida. Uh, in 1944, three white men in Live Oak, Florida, lynched a 15-year-old black boy named Willie James Howard, because Willie James wrote a letter to a white girl that he'd fallen in love love with. And her father got the letter and took two men to this boy's house. He's at his mother's knees begging to be left alone. And they take him at gunpoint. And then they go to where the father worked, a lumber company. And at gunpoint forced the dad to get into the car as well. Although his kid was in the car, so certainly I'm sure he got in. So they drive the boy and his dad out to the swanee river this is all documented on the way to the river they tie willie james's hands and feet together they get to the river and mr Goff, so golf the man whose whose daughter uh, received the letter takes out his pistol and tells willie james howard jump and t- or take us in this barrel so willie james takes his little pocket bible that he carried around with him gave it to his dad his dad says to him son i'm, I'm glad you went to church in, in your life and Willie James jumps into the Swanee River and drowns. Uh, the same day, the black undertaker goes out, gets the body, takes him to the cemetery, buries Willie James Howard in an unmarked grave, and that's the case for forty years. Uh, now, uh, in recent years, ten years or so ago, a, a black minister and some folks in, in one of the black churches uh, paid to have a gravestone made and, and had a ceremony for Willie James Howard. But I've been to that boy's grave, I don't know, a dozen times. And he always followed me back to Miami. His story is just untold. Mind you, this was 10 years before in a till in Mississippi. This happened to Willie James Howard in Florida. If people go to my website, donehistory.com, there's a film that I made on this, on this killing, Murder on the Swami, Willie James Howard's story. It's on donehistory.com. Take a look at that story there. Um, of course, I've been to Rosewood since 1997, where in 1923 a massacre took place, in which this all-black town was almost all-black town. There were one or two white families living there, uh, but a white mob attacked that town in January of 1923 uh, <clears throat> and burned the whole town down. They didn't leave; they burned everything: the Masonic Lodge, the churches, the lodge was actually the, uh, the Masonic Lodge was actually the school that they were using. Uh, using that building for the school. They wiped out everything. All the Black people left. This was in January, extremely cold weather. People ran out of their houses in the night clothes into freezing weather. And this is a swampy area of Florida. And there were children out there for four nights protecting other children as people just fled in every direction they could possibly get away. Uh, there was a man named J.W. Wright, a white man, and his wife, I think her name was Mary, who, they they have the only white Home in, in Rosewood. They they had a, a general store that they ran for the community. And Mr. Wright and his wife protected some of the Black people during this event. They would let women and children, no boys over 13, enter their home at night and they protected them and fed them. And then in the daytime, they'd go back out in the woods because the mob might see them in the house. So, uh, And the children, incidentally, the Black kids hid in the well during the day. Then they com- would come in at night. So you know, there, there's a lot of that history. I, I purchased five acres with a partner in in Rosewood, in 2008. Became the only black person with land out there. Rosewood is still very, very rural. Uh, all the folks out there are white on five acre uh, plot lots like mine, and uh, it's a it's still a somewhat dangerous place. Uh, it's still very white. A lot of folks do not want to uh, confront that past history. Uh, so sometimes it gets very uncomfortable in Rosewood. Uh, but that's the kind of, I could name other places, but those are two of the places I've had special relationship with.
1: Well, I do recommend that people visit your website, donehistory.com, is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah. And then my book, A History of Florida Through Black Eyes, lays out all these places I went to. And that book's on Amazon. I, mentioned, I urge people to take a look at the book, The History of yeah. Florida Through Black Eyes. I really try. You know, a lot of things white eyes don't see or don't wish to see mm-hmm. that black eyes do.
1: Well, there's a lot of things that white supremacists are actively trying to suppress being seen too, which I want to talk about. I mean, I, I recommend people go to that, go to your website. Um, I spent time there and I and I watched some of the interviews with descendants of Rosewood who you brought back to that place and and their experiences and it and it needs to be confronted. It needs to be heard. Um, I wanted to ask you what is lost. What is the damage that's done when this history is kept from people and suppressed? And not just suppressed, let's be honest, whitewashed, lied about, prettified. What's the damage that you see being done with that?
2: Oh, my gosh. You lose a significant part of the Black soul if you take that out of our history. Because we suffered. We didn't make this stuff up. We suffered. And you're right. Florida had the highest lynching rate per capita for Blacks in the state than any other state. Florida has a notorious history. So if you if you take that out, one, you leave out a lot of pain and reality that should be in. Second, you sort of remove any conversation about paying for it, reparations. If you just forget that it happened, well, why should anybody ever think about trying to make up for the damage that it cost? Uh, and then there's just the, um, what's the right word? The, the nerve of it all to say, this is not valuable black history. Who the hell is DeSantis to say that? Where did he learn black history? Yeah. So, you know, I I I, I became very angry, I still am about this. But as you probably know, anger about self doesn't doesn't get you anywhere. You gotta do something about it. So that's why we started the tours, and that's why we started a camp started a campaign to make people know that Santos is a tyrant. He's a little man trying to become a big man, and he's using little man tactics in doing it. And it's very dangerous for this country.
1: Yeah, let me ask you um, what's been the reaction of the students that you've taken on these tours to these locations with their families, spent the night? What's their experience with this? What impact is it having on them?
2: Um, I would say awe, jaw dropping. Many of them say, why well, didn't I know about this before? I heard about uh, George Washington Carver and Martin Luther King and then Rosa Parks. And that's not Black history. So a lot of them are angry that this was kept from them. Uh, some of them cried, particularly in Rosewood when we walked along the railroad track that's on my property. Um, that railroad was used to evacuate some of the people uh, during the terror. Uh, people embrace and they, and, and they reflect. And our group has been uh, diver- a diverse group. We're taking the uh, white and Hispanic kids out there uh, the one that we're doing next week, the it's Black History, months close to this uh, period, we're going to teach just black kids. But basically, uh, the re- the, re- the reaction is awe, anger, uh, sorrow, and the wish to learn more.
1: So uh, now I do want to, you've already brought it up, and I know for good reason, but I do want to talk about DeSantis straight up, because... You've been teaching black history for a long time, you've been researching it, Um, you bought the property in Rosewood and I believe you're building an institution there or that's your goal to have some kind of uh, memorial and place where people can come and learn and visit. Um, But then along comes Ron DeSantis and he's got this whole assault on public education on the teaching of the reality of white supremacy in this country, which is a foundation cornerstone of this country and it's an ongoing reality of this country and he wants to threaten teachers who teach it. Um, it's combined with uh, an assault more broadly on, on critical thought in the public education, on LGBTQ students, all of this. So you decided that you had to t- open a new chapter. It wasn't enough to just teach the history, document the history. Um, you're, you're stepping up to take on Ron DeSantis. Talk, talk a little bit about why and, and what you've learned through doing that.
2: Well, I think as I mentioned, I became one of the eight plaintiffs that went up to stop woke act opposition. Um, We we've never seen anything quite like this in Florida, where the governor tells professors what they can and cannot teach, where the governor controls tenure, uh, where the governor can can just wipe out AP courses. This is an unprecedented, at least uh, at least for the for the uh, previous five decades. This goes back to McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. the DeSantis presents a somewhat unique challenge in that he's a tyrant, and his his goal is to be president at any cost. So, don't be sidetracked by thinking this is really about black people. This is about the nomination. This is about getting the right wing of the Republican Party to support him. And the farther right he moves, the more, the more chance he has of getting that, that, that support. Uh, it's a cheap way to try to get power that may work for him in Florida, but I'm not quite, quite sure this is going to be that successful for him outside of Florida. I just don't think that most people in our country want the government telling professors what to teach and how to teach it, nor do I think most people in our country uh, want teachers in our uh, high schools uh, restrained from teaching the truth and telling the full story of, of history. So what's happening in Florida is really coming to your state as well sooner or later, particularly if this man gets the nomination. And if he, if he becomes president, can you just imagine? Can you imagine what he would do? I wouldn't put it past him to take down the King statue in Washington. He's already talking about moving off offices out of Washington. Anything is possible with becomes president of the, of the United States.
1: I also want to ask you about how you see the connection um, between the attacks on LGBT students, LGBTQ students that don't say gay law and the attacks on black history. If you see uh, a convergence here, a need for alliance. I know a lot of times people are pit against each other in different sections of the people who are being attacked. I, I think it'd be important if you have a perspective on that.
2: It is totally the time. To, it's totally the time to come together. And what the Republicans are doing are going after what they consider to be the weakest group that they can attack. And 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 this community is to them the LBGQ community is to them a the weak target. Uh, if we don't come together, those of us who, who who consider ourselves straight, we don't come together now and help those of, of us who are now under attack by this administration. Uh, we don't deserve to be called American. We need to come together like people did during the Civil Rights Movement. We had whites and Jews and Hispanics. We came together, Native Americans, and we fought uh, uh, Jim Crow. We fought opposition to civil rights, and we won. We need to do that again now, because in my view, this is this is the strength, the, the strongest challenge to our democracy since the Civil Rights uh, Movement. So yes, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Unity now uh, is most important.
1: Well, you know, this it actually leads me to the last question I want to ask you. And I'll just note before I do that. I think, you know, uh, we have a duty as citizens of the world, even more than we have a duty as Americans, um, and everything yes. in America has stood for in the world. So that's where I'm coming from on this. I want to put that out, but, um, I wanted to ask you, I, I'm, I was kind of taken aback when you said you were 82, everybody yes. listening radio you need to know he looks like he's 55 um and you look fabulous mm-hmm. and i'm so glad that you are um, out there and at 82 leading tours overnight traveling the state kicking up a storm against uh desantis leading a fight not slowing down clearly but my question to you is at 82 having lived through exactly what you just described the civil rights movement Then we've seen the the more radical black liberation movement um, that swept in more in the urban areas in the north um, and the revolutionary upsurge of the sixties. And now we are living through, without a doubt, a a really violent backlash and in a certain sense, um, a situation with two countries in one. Um, A lot of people have said it's pre-Civil War conditions, whether you look at the, the, the views on race and black people and their basic humanity and history, Um, Whether you look at questions of LGBTQ rights and and the humanity of people who don't conform to to the dominant sexual norms and gender, whether you look at the rights of women that have been taken away to control their own bodies and reproduction, whatever you look down the line, we are living through, um, yeah, two countries in one, a very violent clash, and it's not determined which is going to win out. In your perspective, in your 82 years um, did you think we'd land here? And what's your any wisdom you want to offer to people before we say goodbye?
2: Well, I went back even beyond before the civil rights era. I was born and raised during Jim Crow. I actually had to sit in the back of the bus. I actually had to think out of the colored water fountains. But uh, when young people say to me, well, Dr. Dunn, nothing's changed. It's just as bad as it was. Well, no, it's not. I was there. It's not as bad as it was. It's not as good as it should be and will be. And I think inevitably, uh, right will will out. You know, I this is a great country. I spent six years as an officer in the navy defending our country, Uh, but this is not the America that I fought for. And I think most Americans uh, agree with that. So I'm I'm optimistic in spite of the fact that I'm now living in a state that's run by talent.
1: All right. Well, Professor Dunn, I'm so happy that you were able to join us here today on the Michael Slate Show. Keep uh, keep it going. keep it, Never stop. Okay. I appreciate it Thank so you. much. And uh, I look forward to, to actually checking out your book as well. So thanks so much.
2: Please do. Thank you.
1: All right. Take care. All right. So that was M- Professor Michael Dunn. He is a professor emeritus at Florida International University. He has been defying Ron DeSantis's ban on teaching black history by leading um, Teach the Truth tours across Florida, uh, unearthing the history of anti-black violence in Florida. And um, he's one of the plaintiffs challenging Ron DeSantis in court. So I'm happy that we were able to have him on air. And before we move forward, I wanna play a piece that Bob Avakian wrote About a year ago, when these attacks on black history were really kicking up and, and gaining steam called racism, white kids need to learn about it. So let's listen to that now and then I'll come back.
3: Racism. White kids need to learn about it.
4: Allow teachers to teach the truth. A dozen Republican led states seeking to ban or limit how the role of slavery and the pervasive effects of racism can be taught. We're teaching people that our country is a horrible place, it's a racist place. We have reached the book-burning stage. We are eradicating uh, this bad stuff. Burn them.
3: Today, fascist politicians, parent groups, and other fascist lunatics are waging a vicious campaign to ban books and, in other ways, keep kids and people generally... From learning even some of the basic truth about this country, its actual history, and its present reality. One of the main lines of attack of these fascists is the claim that learning about white supremacy and racism will make children, that is,
4: white children, feel bad. We can and should teach this history without labeling a young child as an oppressor or requiring he or she feel guilt or shame. Well, as a white youth growing
3: up in the 1950s and early 1960s, when I learned about white supremacy and racism, it did make me feel bad. And that was a very good thing. It made me feel outraged. And yes, it made me feel ashamed. And that made me want to do something to be part of fighting against this white supremacy and racism. And I was not alone in this. This was the experience of huge numbers, millions of white youth who came of age in that period, who were inspired by the Civil Rights Movement and then by the more militant Black Liberation Movement and became part of the revolutionary upsurge of the 1960s. These fascists are determined not to let something like that happen again in these highly charged times. Poisoning the minds of our youth at school, turning some of them into
5: revolutionaries in the streets. And instead,
3: they are setting out to mold a bunch of mindless white youth into rabid racists, similar to the Hitler youth in Germany during the rise of the Nazi fascists there in the 1930s. Shutting down these fascists in their attempts to suppress the truth about this country is a crucial part of defeating this fascism overall. And this, in turn, can be and must be part of getting rid of this whole system of capitalism imperialism which has bred this fascism, which has white supremacy built into its foundation and its ongoing functioning, which is the source of horrific oppression of literally billions of people here and throughout the world, and is a threat to the very existence of humanity through its escalating destruction of the environment and the continual danger of war, between nuclear-armed capitalist imperialist powers including the U.S., Russia,
0: and China.
1: Let's listen to Andy Z's interview
0: with Noche Diaz. I'm here with Noche Diaz, the national spokesperson of the Revolution Clubs on the day before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And Noche and I have come out here in front of the Los Angeles National Cemetery uh, as a background of the stakes of what's happening. Now, these pe- the people buried here are people who have fought in U.S. wars of conquest, And we don't want to forget the millions of people whose lives around the world were sacrificed to the interests of U.S. imperialism. So tomorrow, Noche, you are going to be making a major statement from the revolution
4: clubs. Why don't you tell people about that? So, this Friday, February 24th, is one year since Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. But it's also been a year of escalating U.S. aggression all around the world. They have supplied Ukraine with weapons, intelligence, and funding, training, all as part of what they say is making sure that Russia is delivered a defeat through this conflict. This is not and has not been about Ukrainian sovereignty. This is about the U.S. rivalry with Russia. These are two imperialist powers fighting for their vision of a global imperialist order. And Ukrainians are being thrown to the meat grinder. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, have died in this war. And this Friday, we, the Revcons, are going to declare that right here in the belly of the beast, we are going to be initiating and calling on people to change the direction of things in this country where more and more people who should know better or who are turning away and ignoring the dangers of, of World War, of nuclear Armageddon, are mobilized to, around the demands. No U.S. NATO war with Russia. Stop the U.S. threats against China. No World War III, this system, not humanity, needs to go extinct. We refuse to accept their future. It's time to get organized for a real revolution. Part of that first slogan, Noche, was
0: stop U.S. threats against
4: China. What are those threats and why does it matter? Well, you've seen throughout this year and even recently with the balloon fiasco and, you know, the U.S. claiming China is surveilling U.S. territory and making aggressive moves. There's been an escalated posture and talk of facing down and confronting China. This is part of this whole threat of World War III and nuclear Armageddon that the U.S. keeps instigating and part of what we have to take responsibility to oppose. And let's remember, NATO is not just a coalition of peaceful countries who want to come together and promote peace throughout the world. It's a military alliance that comes out of World War II and that the US has headed up for decades and decades. And the conflict with Russia had been escalating even before the invasion because the US and NATO had been escalating this military alliance and the supply of weapons in Eastern Europe. This has been part of what the US is doing around the world and like it recently conducted military operations which NATO explicitly said they saw as further cooperation between the US and NATO against China. This is what has been happening all for decades and is taking huge leaps right now.
0: No, Jay, as we brought out, and why we're here in front of a massive cemetery is that, is the danger here, of all-out nuclear war. In addition to the hundreds of thousands who are perishing already in this inter-imperialist conflict, this proxy war. One of our slogans is it's this system, not humanity, that needs to become extinct.
4: That's right, because this rivalry has potentially grave dangers, not just for those who are directly involved, but. With the use of nuclear weapons, we could be talking about passing a threshold that would radically reshape and change the whole face of the planet and human life on it if it's able to even continue to exist. We cannot allow this to go down. As Bob Avakian has said, it's always been bad that this system is what's in power, but humanity can no longer afford to allow these imperialists on either side to continue to rule the world. We have to come out with something in the interest of humanity. With these slogans, to stop the dangers of World War III, but also to build this as part of making a revolution. Because these are times when the future is coming up for grabs, and the dangers are escalating, but also the possibilities. And that's why we we're declaring that this system needs to become extinct. It has nothing good for the future of humanity, but we do by getting rid of it through revolution.
0: Well, that's uh, that's really important, and in fact. The system that we want to bring into being is a radically new system uh, that is the the basic contours of which the blueprint for this new society is in the constitution for a new socialist republic in North America. And right in that constitution is written that these over 700 bases of U.S. imperialism around the world, they're going to be dismantled right after the revolution because we're not about enforcing the rule of imperialism that creates all the child labor that you were talking about in the extraction of minerals and the poisoning of the environment. And not only that, in terms of the danger of nuclear war, day one, we are going to renounce the use of and destroy the nuclear weapons that do exist in this country and then go struggle for the elimination of nuclear weapons all around the world. This is right in that constitution. But let's talk a little bit more about that last slogan. We don't accept their future. It's time to get organized for an actual
4: revolution. That's right. We need to cut through all this confusion and BS of what's going on right now and bring out the interests of humanity. Right here, the Revolution Club has the principle that we're fighting for a world without borders and and to get to a whole world where humanity comes first and and so right here in the belly of the beast, this force is going to be building and organizing people to raise these demands and these slogans as part of making a revolution to bring this whole system down, okay, and to bring about that new society where you don't have the people who run it enforcing this world order of plunder and exploitation and destruction of the environment and holding everyone hostage to nuclear Armageddon through this modern day madness and this is what needs to come out of this and what we're organizing for throughout these next weeks and months after, after uh, International Women's Day and going into May Day to actually build that force and make a powerful message right here. And right here people need to take up this stand
0: against the danger of war. People need to stand against what's being done in their name by their government. Bob Vakian has said in the interviews we did on the RNL show, if we were in Russia, we would be arguing and struggling against that. But we're here in this country. You can't stand aside from this. For one, nuclear war is going to envelope the entire world. But two, if you're defending this country, you're never going to be in a situation to radically change it. You've got a system of gangsters ruling the world. We need a different system. And you need to be a part of learning about this leadership that we have in Baba Vicki and learning about the revolution, and most of all, learning how in a time like this, when big existential questions are raised, such as the question of war, the environment, as well as the splits on every social question in this country, there's a chance that we could actually get free of this system and make a revolution. And so I definitely support the Revolution Club getting out there on this question at this time.
1: All right, so that was Andy Z, who is the host of the Revolution Nothing Less show, speaking with Noche Diaz. Noche is the national spokesperson for the revolution clubs around the country. We approach March 8th, International Women's Day this year, at a time when the world is changing rapidly and radically. All over the world, in reaction to major changes that have pulled women out of the homes and into the workforce and broken down many traditional forms of patriarchy, a violent backlash against women is surging from the booming global industry of sexual slavery to skyrocketing femicide to barbaric Islamic fundamentalism and the equally barbaric Christian fascism in this country that has already stolen the right to abortion and is not stopping there. At the same time, we see historically unprecedented eruptions of women's fury against femicide and for abortion rights across Latin America, against rape from England to India, against the enslavement of women in Iran. And you even saw powerful glimpses of this here, last summer, fighting for abortion rights. As Bob Avakian said years ago, And as is becoming ever more acutely and immediately posed today, the situation of women is a powder keg in this country, and it is not conceivable that all this will find any resolution other than in the most radical terms and through extremely violent means. The question yet to be determined is, will it be a radical reactionary or a radical revolutionary resolution? Will it mean the reinforcing of the chains of enslavement or the shattering of the most decisive links in those chains and the opening up of the possibility of realizing the complete elimination of all forms of such enslavement. This International Women's Day, we need to fight for an advance towards this revolutionary resolution. Yet right at this moment, with so much at stake for the future, we also see among way too many who consider themselves woke, or enlightened, an all-out erasure of women, a denial of their oppression, and a refusal to wage the fight that is needed around this. We see this, for example, in the refusal of groups like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, and pretty much the whole so-called reproductive rights movement, to even use the word woman, even when talking about attacks on the right to abortion.
5: Using terms and phrases like a woman's right to choose or women's rights when talking about
1: abortion excludes trans and non-binary people. They insist instead of speaking only of people with uteruses or people who can become pregnant because there are trans and non-binary people who can become pregnant and do need abortions and who do not identify as women. Some even attempt to cancel those of us who do use the word women for supposedly being transphobic. This is just wrong. Let me be very clear. Trans people need the right to abortion, and the fascist attacks on trans people, and especially on trans youth, need to be fought vigorously. These attacks need to be defeated. But it is also necessary to tell the truth. Christian fascist theocrats in this country are attacking abortion rights precisely to violently return women to even more open subordination to the patriarchal family. Wives, writes Paul, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now what is submission? The idea is to place oneself under, to, to subordinate oneself. By forcing them to have children, whether they want to or not. Forced motherhood is female enslavement, and erasing the word woman does not change this. All it does is disorient people about what is really driving this attack and render them passive when they should be clear-eyed and fighting. And so to provide important understanding about the origins and ongoing reality of the oppression of women, and to provide firmer grounding to understand why it is in fact true that the assault on abortion rights is rooted in this patriarchal oppression, we want to share an excerpt of Baba Avakian's 2012 talk from which we take the name of this show. B. A. speaks. Revolution, nothing less. After that, I'll be joined by Annie Day to discuss how you can be part of making this International Women's Day a powerful leap and unleashing the fury of women and putting real revolution on the map in 2023. So let's watch.
3: Early human societies were not societies of gigantic empires and civilizations with masters and slaves and so on and so forth. They were small groupings of people starting out in Africa and then eventually spreading to other parts of the world who lived largely by gathering and hunting, mainly by gathering, despite all the alpha male mythology about the great hunter and so on. Especially in the early days, hunting was a very uncertain enterprise. Often you didn't get anything. Or if you were lucky, you found the remains of an animal that another animal had killed, and you took that back and distributed it among the people in your community. And every once in a while, you really got on top of things, and maybe you got a few animals and you brought those back. But mainly, the livelihood of the people was done by the gathering of what was at hand in the area over which people ranged, the fruits and other nuts and other things people could eat. It was more of a very simple hand-to-mouth existence, more or less. And there was a certain division of labor within this. The men, yes, were the ones who mainly went out and did the hunting. And the women did more of the gathering because they were, had to stay more in the area of the, where the people were living at the time. Why? Well, if you think about it for a second, it's, it'll, the answer will suggest itself. Obviously, the women are the ones who bore and who mainly had responsibility for raising the children, especially in their early years. Think about it. There was no birth control, as we certainly know, consistent birth control, no family planning in that sense, no formula, all these kind of things. So babies came when they came, and they had to be nursed for a couple of years. So naturally, it fell to the women to do that. And as a result, this division of labor developed, where they stayed more around the home and did the gathering. But it's important to emphasize this was not an oppressive division. The communities were more or less marked by equality. I say more or less. It wasn't a perfect equality. But women as well as men took part in the decision making. Marriages and sexual relations were very relaxed, formed by mutual consent more or less. And either partner could break up, if there were a pair, could break it up. Or people didn't pair in the way we're familiar with. They might have had several partners, each of them, that they were paired with. So all the things that we're familiar with and are told are just the natural order of things. God decree that the family is one man and one woman. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. (laughs) All that stuff is just a function of how society has developed since these early communities. So this early division was not oppressive, but it was a division. And through, once again, a lot of accident and necessity, trial and error, in some parts of the world, particularly in Eurasia, the part that's Europe and the Middle East, more or less, for a variety of reasons, out of need and out of innovation, people, instead of just gathering, started settling down and farming. And sometimes they failed at it. But where they succeeded, they were able to produce a lot more food than they needed at a given time after a certain period of experimenting with this. They could put aside a surplus for the future. They didn't just live literally hand to mouth. And they also domesticated animals. You can read some about this in, in Jared Diamond's Germs, Guns, and Steel. They, do, they domesticated animals. They they began to develop another division of labor, where on the basis of there being a surplus of farming, because when you're farming, you just don't take what's there. You transform the soil, and you can make it richer, and it can produce more than what you would need at a given time. So on that basis, you could have some people who didn't have to farm, and they would work on developing implements and tools to increase the farming and the other activity of the people and, and get an even bigger yield and more surplus. And the domestication of animals went along with this. Where the animals were available and could be domesticated, particularly in this Eurasian area, they were also harnessed to till the soil, which made it even more rich, fertile, and productive. But along with this, as this took hold in various places, it broke down the old communal society and ways of doing things and the old relations, more or less, of communal equality. Now, let me make clear here. I do not believe, and I don't think there's a scientific basis to say, that even if you could show that in the earliest communal societies there were all kinds of relations of exploitation and oppression, that would somehow prove that it wouldn't be possible to move beyond this in the period in which we exist now, because this is a very different world. And it doesn't prove there's some inherent, unchangeable and unchanging human nature that makes people selfish and want to oppress and exploit other people. But by and large, these early communities were not marked by the oppression and exploitation and divisions that we're all familiar with, except when they encountered other community groups that were alien to them. And often, they didn't know how to resolve things or fit each other in. And so there were conflicts, including violent conflicts between these groups sometimes. It's interesting, if you look at the early societies that are still more or less have have been perpetuated down to the present, you will find that if you inquire how do the people in those societies or communities or tribes or peoples refer to themselves, very often, they don't use this or that name that you might think they'd use. They just refer to themselves in what translates into English as the people. And this is very common in all parts of the world. So what happens when you, the people, meet the other the people who, and you can't figure out who's the real people and how to relate? Well, you might get, you have different mythology, different history, so you might have violent conflicts. Not always, but there were at times. But as this farming and the division of labor and the domestication of animals and the development of surplus took hold, it began to break down these communal societies. You got the emergence of private property, private ownership of parcels of land, private private ownership of the domesticated animals, private ownership of the tools that were being developed. And along with this, you got an oppressive division emerging between the sexes or the genders because With this division of labor that had carried over from very early days, the women were still the ones mainly responsible for the bearing and rearing of children. So it more and more fell to the men to be the ones organizing the farming and related activity. And they, on this basis, appropriated the means of production, the land, the raw materials that might be under the land, the farm animals that had been domesticated, the tools, as their private property. And as they did that over time, they wanted to be able to pass this private property to their heirs, in particular their male heirs. So then they became concerned to control the activity of women, and in particular, the sexual activity of women. Because you wanted to be sure that the male heirs that you were passing it on to were your own and not somebody else's. Now, I have to say, they did have a a problem here. Because while the women were tightly controlled and not allowed to sleep with anybody else, the men went around and did it anyway. So then you got a problem. Well, if the men are sleeping with people other than their wives, how do you know whose children are really whose? So they just instituted over, again, trial and error. Not somebody sat down and wrote out a piece of paper. But trial and error, they simply instituted that whoever the woman's children were, Those were the children of her husband. But still, the husband wanted to have a better chance of knowing they were really his own children he's passing these things on to. So he was concerned. And men got together to enforce the control over the sexuality and other activity of women. And this has been carried forward from that time through different forms of society, which had been divided into oppressors and oppressed, exploited and exploited exploiters and exploited masters and slaves and that brings up the next point that once you started having this way of life as opposed to the old communal way then instead of when you had encounters with other people from other tribes or groups or whatever instead of just killing them if there were a violent conflict it made a certain amount of sense economically to take them as slaves cuz now you could put them to work on the in agriculture and other forms of activity that would help create even more surplus, more surplus than you would have to spend maintaining them. So women were one of the first groups enslaved in this way, but also people involved in conflicts among the different groups. And so down through a whole period of thousands of years since this time, we've had the evolution of the kind of societies we've had, marked by the division into exploiters and exploited, oppressors and oppressed, masters and slaves.
1: That was Bob Avakian from his 2012 speech, BA Speaks Revolution, Nothing Less. It is worth watching the whole thing. We could only do that section today, and I'm very happy to be joined here in studio right now by Annie Day. She is a RevCom, a follower of Bob Avakian, and she has been in the middle of the revolutionary organizing for International Women's Day this year. Welcome, Annie. I'm really glad to be here. I, just listening to what we just heard from
5: Bob Avakian, it's so uh, important to actually get to understand that this is not permanent, that it's not just men are this way and women are this way. and oh, this is just human nature.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, people say that all the time. And I think it's so important. That, uh, the way he breaks down that the control over women's bodies, their lives, their reproduction, their sexuality, this didn't always exist. It emerged only with the division, as he said, into masters and slaves, exploiters and exploited, rulers and ruled. And that then once you have that division, which is still with us today, different form, capitalism, imperialism, but it's still with us today. It starts to matter whose children belong to what man, who's going to inherit what wealth, who's going to inherit what social position, who's going to be born back in history as a slave or a ruler or today in what social position, what part of the world, all of that still gets mediated through the patriarchal family and women's lives, the very sense of what it means to be a woman, what your duty is to submit to your husband as your husband submits to the Lord, as they say in the Bible, to, to, to guard your virginity or be ashamed if you don't, to, to make babies, whether you want to or not, as the highest duty. This has been enforced in different forms ever since then, and it's still with us today. Yes, different forms, but it's still what's going on. I mean, I think it's it, that that virgin whore dichotomy, uh,
5: you know, years ago you gave a you did a speaking tour and from the burka to the thong, everything can and must change. And we need a total revolution, We need a total revolution. But that is still with us today. And we do need a total revolution. But you think about how, uh, you know, distorting this is for young girls that grow up thinking Either they should um, flaunt their sexuality because that's what they're worth, or they should k- maintain pure till they can save up for that white wedding dress, which will show that they're, you know, that they're, vir-
1: show their virginity. And it's the way that men get trained and socialized too, to be dominators, to be oppressors. And again, it's not human nature. This is violently enforced in the culture. I mean, many places around the world in the laws, but definitely in the economic structures and the traditions, all the ways that men are trained to be dominators, controllers, little boys are told not to cry, to man up. All of that is, is not human nature. It's, it's socially enforced and it's rooted still and reinforced by these class divisions that remain with us. And yet here we are. And I think this is very important. It's 2023. Not only is this barbaric, not only is it not necessary, but we are in an era now where it is ripe to actually make a revolution, get beyond these class divisions, get beyond the oppression of women that is bound up with them and reinforced by them. And you see eruptions of the fury of women around the world that could be and need to be a very powerful driving force in making that revolution. I mean, yes, and this is exactly where International Women's Day
5: comes in. You know, capitalism and imperialism is an incredibly dynamic system, and it is pulled billions of, of, you know, people around the world from the countrysides into the cities and shanty towns. And it's shredded all of these traditional ways of living, of traditional ways of being. So you have women, you know, as the backbone force in the sweatshops, in the fields here in the U.S. You have women CEOs, you have women working in tech all throughout service industries. You have women that have been pulled out of the home and their kind of subordinate position as happy homemaker, which whatever the f- that's never, it was always a nightmare. But at the very time, you know, and yet, and yet, so then in the, in response to that, you have this Christian fascist revenge that is then trying to throw women backwards. And it's then part of this larger theocratic program. And yet at the very time, exactly as you said, that this question is posed for resolution in terms of the potential to actually emancipate women as a part of emancipating all humanity as part of breaking all those chains of oppression. And this is the fault line that International Women's Day is happening in the midst of, is responding to, and has the potential and need to put
1: this revolution on the map in terms of actually now. Because the only way to get beyond the economic structures, the social relations, the whole web of a system that feeds off of and fuels and drives forward this oppression of women is by overthrowing the system of capitalism, imperialism, establishing a radically new emancipating society that does go forward to continue to dig up that oppression, all gender oppression, all oppression based on sexual orientation and all the other forms of exploitation and oppression that are built into capitalism, imperialism here and all over the world. So that is what needs, that's what cries out to be done. And that is right now where International Women's Day, I think it'd be helpful and important for you to close out by sharing. What are the plans for International Women's Day this year? How do people get involved? And what do they have to do with ripening the revolution that's so urgently needed and possible. If you're watching
5: and if you're one of the people who have been inspired by the uprisings of the women and people of Iran against this patriarchal oppression, if you've been inspired by the uprisings in Latin America, if you are furious to your bones about the overturning of the right to abortion and refuse to live in a world where women are forced to bear children against their will, if you hunger for an end to this millennia-old oppression, then you need to be part of marking International Women's Day with a revolutionary celebration. We're calling for people to come together under the slogans and the spirit and the determination to break the chains, unleash the fury of women as a mighty force for revolution. Patriarchy and capitalism, you can't end one without ending the other, and abortion on demand and without apology. And on International Women's Day itself, on March 8th, stay tuned to the Revcom's Instagram and social media and revcom.us for what the plans are on March 8th itself. We refuse to live in a world where women are treated as, as, as sex objects, as slaves, as breeders. We demand a better world. Break the chains, unleash the fury of women as a mighty force
1: for revolution. All right. And so wherever you are around the country, If you want to take action on this day, if you want to be part of putting revolution on the map and ending this oppression of women and all oppression, reach out to us and strategize with us about how you want to do that where you are. I also want to urge you to lift your sights to a whole radically different liberated world that's possible through the revolution we are fighting for, to read and learn about the Constitution for the New Socialist Republic in North America that Bob Avakin authored. And to dig into the work that BA has done on this question, which really has broken new ground and is far more radical, far more scientific than anything that anybody's done before. You saw just a taste of it today. There are answers to so much more in his work, in the interviews that we have on this channel in the works from him on our website. So we want to urge you and invite you to dig into this and to spread this too as part of hastening the ability to really break the chains and unleash the fury of women as a mighty force for revolution in 2023.